Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Good morning, church. Yeah, look out the, around the room and uh, just see faces of people who know they've been saved by God's grace and goodness and uh, that the cross matters so much and the redeemed have gathered to say so. And uh, God's presence is in this place today. If you're watching online today, I pray you sense God's presence uh, in your space right now. If you're watching later this week, maybe you're listening in the car on a commute, I pray you sense the presence of God with you right now. Page one of my sermon is a picture my son colored me last night in Rockbrook for Kids with a verse that says, God's spirit makes us loving, happy, peaceful, patient, kind, and good. Amen. Good day, everybody. See you later. <laughs> if you serve in Rockbrook for Kids, thank you so much for impacting uh, my children's life and for pouring into the next generation and uh, serving in that way. God bless you. Uh, today is on the cross. Only, only God, only Jesus could take the cross, a tool of execution, and turn it into something we sing about today and cherish and love. Only God could turn a tool of execution into a symbol of hope and salvation for all. Even in times of destruction and hopelessness, we look for the cross and we find it. Uh, whether it's in a cathedral or a tornado in Joplin or on 9-11, the cross stands out to us and we cherish it. Why? Because it means that even in the darkest day, there is purpose in grief and loss. Even in the darkest day, there is goodness, there is hope, there is faith. Even in the face of death, there is salvation. We go to Matthew 27 today. On your notes, but I've got a little bit more. I decided to read a little bit more uh, before we get to your notes. It'll begin tracking with your notes, or with your notes soon. At Matthew 27, 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head they put a staff in his right hand they knelt in front of him and mocked him hail king of the jews they said they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again after they had mocked him they took off the robe and put, on, and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down. They kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, 
the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. I want to zero in today on one specific verse that we just read. It's verse 45. It's where Jesus uh, makes a statement. It's one of the seven statements Jesus made on the cross, one of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And there's a lot we can learn from this specific one. It's verse 45. It says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want us to notice three words in this verse. And uh, I'll speak to these uh, for a little bit here today before we move on in our outline. But these three words, cried, why and my cried speaks to the reality of Jesus' death. The word why points to the reason for his death. The word my points to the accomplishments of his death. I'll say that again. The word cried points to the fact that Jesus died. The word why points to the reason for his death. And the word my points to what he accomplished, the accomplishments of his death. Let's just look at a moment at the fact, the reason, and the accomplishment of the cross. First notice that in the ninth hour, uh, around three o'clock, Jesus cried in a loud voice. It's a word that could be translated to scream or screech. And any first-time reader uh, who hasn't heard a sermon about this, doesn't know much about 
uh, the gospel or the cross would look at this and say, Jesus is cracking here. Uh, He's losing it. He's saying, God, why have you abandoned me? You failed me. It seems so unheroic, so hopeless, but it's so real. In fact, even critics, historians who don't believe Jesus rose from the dead believe he absolutely died on the cross this way because of the way that this is written and the way that this happened. It's so real. What's fascinating is Matthew and Mark, who give account to this, both write this in Aramaic, the way Jesus would have screamed it, and then translate it into Greek, who they're writing to. They don't do that. Why did they do it in this instance? I mean, there's no need to write what he said in Aramaic and then write it in Greek to who he's writing to. But the reason they write it exactly the way he said it is because of eyewitness memory. People remembered. They never forgot that cry. I don't want you to forget that cry. It happened. He died on the cross. And the cry points to the fact of Jesus' death. Secondly, this word why points to the reason why it happened. It moves us toward the reason. Why did God forsake Jesus on the cross? And the beginning uh, of the answer is to realize that what Jesus is even saying here is actually a Bible verse. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. He cried it. He screamed this verse. He was quoting a Bible verse showing uh, he knows exactly what's going on here and what's happening. He's not cracking. He's not losing it. He knows what's going on. This was the beginning of Psalm 22. (laughs) Psalm 22 is one of the most puzzling psalms uh, in there. King David wrote many of the psalms. And we know that he wrote them uh, in response to various times of his life. He's reflecting on situations and circumstances in his life. And there were terrible times in his life. Uh, There's a psalm, Psalm 51, after his son died. You can read what he wrote. You can see uh, in your Bible, especially in a study Bible, really comes to life if you grab like a chronological reading plan because you read through the life of David and then you see these psalms interjected in here of what he's reflecting on and and his decision to praise God in the midst of this, in the midst of that. And after this happened, this is what he wrote. After this happened, this is what he wrote. Let me read some excerpts from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Strong bulls encircle me. Roaring lions open their mouths wide against me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. You lay me in the dust of death. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and and cast lots for my garment. When did that ever happen to David? When did anyone pierce his hands and feet? surrounding him no this is not describing a time in David's life this is not describing uh, an illness or depression or even some general persecution it's describing an execution did that ever happen to David of course not Jesus therefore by crying this out is saying by the Holy Spirit David was pointing to me I'm being executed judgment is coming down on me Execution's not just a tragic death, it is a punishment. 
And from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. You read through the Old Testament, you know what darkness means. God sends darkness. Amos 8 says, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will make that time like morning for an only sun. Darkness means God's judgment. It's all over the land. It's a sign that judgment is over the whole human race. Punishment is deserved and it's got to come down from somewhere. Darkness over the land. Uh, Friend, you cannot come to grips with understanding why God forsook Jesus. You can't understand the cross until you understand that all human beings stand guilty before God and deserving judgment and punishment. Now, come on, that lands good in a church service, but people don't believe that. (laughs) I mean, no one's resisting that in here right now, but our culture does not believe that. We generally resist this. In fact, what do we tell people? We tell each other, oh, honey, don't let anyone make you feel guilty. Brother, don't, don't, make any, don't let anyone feel guilty for what you're doing. You have to decide what's right or wrong for you. You live the way you want, and by all means, good grief, don't let make someone make you feel guilty for your choices. But if you say, nothing should make me feel guilty, I decide what's right and wrong, what I'm saying is nothing is more important than me. My feelings, my intuition, my conscience, nothing is more valuable than my needs. There's nothing more important than me. There's nothing to sacrifice for. There's nothing to lay down a a feeling or intuition or my conscience and submit it to something. There's nothing to serve or feel guilty if I don't. I'm saying nothing transcends me, nothing bigger than me. In other words, if there's no guilt, there's no hope. Are you tracking with me today? That that if there's nothing to live for, if there's nothing to sacrifice for, nothing to die for, it's just me. And the reason why there is unbelievable hopelessness and pessimism about the future in our culture is because... We don't want to feel guilty. We don't feel guilt. And what the Bible is saying is there is truth. There is light. There is right. There is guilt. There is a guiding sense. There is something more important than you. There's a God. And we are to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because he gave us our heart, soul, mind, and strength and he gave us everything and he's given us those things. And we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And when we don't live up to it, then because we've got something to live for, hope, light, right, truth, when we don't live up to it, there's guilt. And the dark clouds of judgment come over our life. And there's a punishment for guilt. Guilty people are not to go free. There is to be a punishment. That's why Jesus was forsaken. Because instead of the punishment coming down on you or me, it came down on him. 
Let's look at this third word in here, and that is my, my God. Do you notice what he's not saying here? He is not saying my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet. He's uh, dying of suffocation on the cross. He's not crying out uh, my lungs. His friends have abandoned him. He's not crying out my friends, my friends. The physical suffering are, are not the primary problem here. The relational is not, uh, relational suffering is not the primary issue. Up until this moment, Jesus has been pretty put together, okay? Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he has been under control and collected. Even Even in sufferings, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, he's dropping wisdom. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Put down your sword. Uh, he's cunning. You say that I am a king. He's been collected. Now he's screeching on the cross. What's happening? There is a suffering he has experienced that makes all the other suffering he experienced like a flea bite in comparison to this. What is it? He is losing connection with God the Father. And there is no greater agony than losing a love, is there? It hurts. It destroys heart. It destroys body. The Father and Son's souls had been wrapped together not just for 30 years not just for a lifetime for all eternity and that's what Jesus is losing in every other place Jesus refers to God as father my father here it's my God he is experiencing eternal suffering because if we turn away from God the punishment is exclusion God turns from us And Jesus was not just taking that, he was taking that for all of us. What Jesus was experiencing on the cross was a trillion hells compressed into one and laid on him at once, taking the condemnation of every evil thing that's ever been done. Have you ever faced condemnation? Have you ever felt shame over something? Jesus felt the shame for that thing, your sin. He experienced it on the cross. And losing a love because of it to an extreme we can never comprehend. My God, my God. If you ever heard me say my Lauren or my Landry or my Sterling, you would know, man, there's an intimacy there. This is not just another person. He's saying, I've lost my God. And not only is this suffering, but in this moment, this is perfect obedience. Uh, Here's just a little fast uh, theology lesson for us all. We all need it. Uh, When Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, he's using covenant language because God says in the Old Testament, if you enter into a covenant saving relationship with me, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people and you have the right to call me my God. It's a covenant relationship. Every person in the history of the world can be assured of this. If you give yourself to God, God will be with you. Every person can be assured of that. If you give yourself to God, he will be with you. But when Jesus Christ gave himself to God, he was abandoned. Every other person, God says, if you obey me, I'll be with you. I'll bless you. To Jesus, he obeyed and was abandoned and cursed. And in the midst of all that, he's obeying anyway. 
He's saying, my God. He's loving and holding on to the covenant. No one's gone through what he's going through. This is perfect obedience. This is why the gospel is not, is not just one gift. It's not just one substitution. We've been talking about substitution in the series. Remember, this is a theology lesson. This is not one form of substitution, but two. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only does God put our sins, our condemnation on Jesus so he dies the death we should have died, but we are told God puts his righteousness on us because he lived the life we should have lived. He obeyed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this plainly. God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. It's not just that you get out of jail free. It's not just that God pardons you. God puts the Congressional Medal of Honor on you and treats you as though you've done everything Jesus Christ did and obeyed the way Jesus Christ did. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, there's a scene in one of those old investigative TV shows. Uh, someone sent me uh, where, have you ever noticed how many of those are on TV? Like, if you ever wonder if we're made in the image of God and love justice, just count how many TV shows there are about justice uh, on TV right now. Uh, but someone sent me one where this broken down 80-year-old veteran is being arrested by these great big Navy MPs. But it turns out that this vet had won on Iwo Jima the Congressional Medal of Honor. And he always wears the Congressional Medal of Honor under his suit. And so they're there to arrest him. These, these two big, snarling, just humongous Navy MPs are here to arrest this guy. And the guy's friend reaches behind him and pulls his tie out of the way and reveals the Congressional Medal of Honor. And what are those two, I mean, twice the size of him Navy MPs do? They snap to attention and salute that guy. What, what are they saluting? I mean, this little guy is half their size. They're saluting his accomplishment, this medal, what it represents. Friend, you're not just forgiven. He just didn't die that you didn't, he did not just die the death you should have died. He did not only suffer, he perfectly obeyed in your place. So that when you believe, all the medals that Jesus earned in this battle are hung on your chest and put on you. And all the world salutes you. My God shows the infinity of his suffering, his perfect obedience, and this amazing accomplishment at the cross. So let's just stand back and look at the question as a whole. Why did he do it? Why did God forsake Jesus? Why did Jesus let uh, God do it? Why were they in this position where it could happen? And a right answer to that question is one I've taught you many times, that he's doing this to glorify God, to the glory of God the Father. It's all about glorifying God. But the reason that answer is inadequate was that in heaven, Jesus was already glorifying God the Father. He didn't have to come to earth to do it. Didn't have to. Why did he come? What did he get by coming to earth that he did not have before? 
us. Why did he let all this happen to him? He says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. Why did he get forsaken? Why did he let all this happen? Why, did he, why does he go through the agony voluntarily? I mean, he quotes a Bible verse here to show he knows what he's doing. Why did he do it? For you. Uh, even just say it. Just, just whisper it right now in your seat. For me. For me. But you have to believe. Um, I mean, you've got to say it. You've got to believe in your heart Jesus rose from the dead. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You've got to be willing to admit, and this, the cross happened, and it's a punishment. And the clouds were over us, they were over me, and he took the punishment. And now if you believe that, you are in Christ, and this promise applies to you. But I've talked with so many people who, uh, they are still filled with condemnation from their guilt. And the answer to your condemnation is the cross of Jesus Christ. So how do I respond to a love like that? How should I respond to the death of Jesus Christ? And when I look at the cross, it means three things. I, I ought to love Christ. I ought to hate sin. And I ought to tell others. If you're taking notes, number one, I, I ought to love Christ. Even if God never did anything else for me, he deserves my total devotion. He just bought my ticket to heaven with his own life. He just paid my penalty in his place with his own blood. I ought to love Christ with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Romans 3.22 says we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes. No matter who we are, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, no matter when you, you exist, it applies to us today. You are made right with God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. I love him. In 1 John, it gives us this language that I can say, I love him because he first loved me. When I was rebelling against him, he was loving me. When I was forgetting God, before I even knew to love God, he's pouring his life out for me, taking my condemnation, taking my judgment. When those nails went through Jesus, they went right into the heart of God. God loves you. God so loves you. If you ever wonder if God loves you, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. In response to the cross, what should I do? I, I ought to, number two, I ought to hate sin. Why? Because it was sin that put Jesus on the cross. So when sinful thoughts rise in my mind, I should reject those. When I'm with others and they're making light of sin, I should not participate. When I'm tempted, I should remember the cross. When I watch TV or movies and I'm entertained by someone else sinning, what am I doing? Romans 6.11 says in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And sin is no laughing matter. If you want to know how serious sin is, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Christianity teaches us, it teaches us uh, to hate sin, but to love people. But what do we do? We love our sin and we hate people. 
We do the opposite. But we're to be dead to sin. We're to hate sin. And sometimes hating something is an evidence of love. If someone hurts my kids, I'm going to hate that. Why? Because I love my kids. Now this is especially powerful when we face temptation. Would you just maybe say this over, over your week or think about this this week? I'll think about the cross as I face temptation. This week, as I face temptation, I'm going to think about the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to think about what he paid for my life and for me. What we think about drives our life. We've talked about that many times. We form our thoughts. Our thoughts form our lives. What will we think about this week? And number three, I ought to tell others. If someone died for you, wouldn't you want to know it? (laughs) You're going to heaven because somebody told you. It was a parent, grandparent, pastor, a friend, someone at school, someone in your life. Maybe several people told you, but you're going to heaven because somebody told you. You're going to heaven because somebody told somebody that told you. You're going to heaven because somebody told somebody that told somebody that told you. You're going to heaven because somebody told somebody told somebody told somebody told you. You're going to heaven because somebody told somebody told somebody told somebody told somebody told you. Is it going to end with you? Is it going to stop with you? 2 Corinthians 5.19, for God was in Christ restoring the world to himself, no longer counting men's sins against them, but blotting them out. This is the wonderful message he has given us to tell others. Uh, I heard from a man some time ago who was uh, sharing his faith with people. He's talking about how uh, he had a passion to share his faith, and he'd been sharing his faith for a long time. He shared his faith uh, with people at his school, people in his life, people in his family, and he was getting discouraged because whenever he would bring up his faith, whenever he would bring up Jesus Christ, uh, it would just turn into uh, something completely other than he had planned. It would just derail. Uh, He'd get discouraged because he would want to talk about how Christ has saved him, and the person he would witness to uh, would want to talk about a famous Christian leader who had failed. He'd want to bring up Jesus Christ and talk about his faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, The discussion would quickly get political, or uh, it would get deep into different things. So the person would want to talk about evolution or talk about the age of the earth. Uh, or they'd end up just talking about other people. Or he'd get bizarre questions. Come on, can you relate to any of that? Preach. <laughs> and uh, he just stepped back and says, you know, I need to change my strategy here. And so he decided that whenever he had the opportunity, uh, he would say, I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. And someone would bring something up. They'd talk about a a prominent Christian leader who had failed. And he would respond, you know what? What that person did was, it's tragic. It's wrong. It's wrong. And I I still believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. And his goal was not to be a resounding gong, not to be annoying, I mean, it's not the only thing he would ever say to them. I mean, he's their friends, their family. I mean, they're in a relationship. But as they brought up other stuff, conversation would conclude. I, I still believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. 
And finally, one day, someone said to him, so how does that work exactly? <laughs> Bingo. Now we can have a conversation about Christ. Now we can have a conversation about grace and forgiveness. Now can I tell you my story? Now can I tell you what Christ has done in my life? This was extremely freeing to me. When I learned I don't have to force it. I don't have to be a salesperson. I don't have to know the answer to every question. I've got to be consistent. I don't have to win an argument. But I get to tell people, I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. And I'm going to learn and I'm going to do the work. And friend, I could tell you all about the age of the earth. And uh, you're going to hear about it because I'll tell you all about it. But if, if, if that's a question in your mind, and if you're here today, can I, can I just tell you, I really truly believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. And I believe he carried in him, in his spirit, the condemnation for my sin. And he broke the power of sin in my life. And it has radically transformed my life. It's changed the way I see the world. It's given me hope. It's given me a future. It's given me a promise. It's given me peace. It's given me hope. It's given me love. And I am so thankful. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray two prayers today. One is, uh, if you're coming to Jesus Christ today and you're deciding you want to believe, maybe you're coming back to God, uh, a prayer doesn't save you. Um, there's nothing you can do, actually, to be saved. Only God can save you. But maybe in this moment, you want to dedicate uh, to Him. You want to talk to Him. You want to pray to Him. You want to let Him know you believe. And I'm going to pray again for those who have made that decision. Dear God, I realize how much you love me. I knew Jesus died, but I didn't realize it was for me. I didn't realize uh, that I could be included in my death being paid for, that he died in my place. I didn't realize I could have eternal life, that I could be saved, and I want to turn myself to you. I want to learn how to know you like you know me, to love you like you love me, to serve you like you serve me by meeting my greatest need. And God, I have a lot of needs today, but none greater than salvation. And so I turn to you. Be the Savior of my life. I need a Savior, God. Accept me into your family. And for those who have made that decision, just come before God again today in this prayer, in this time of worship. To say, God, again, I realize how powerfully you love me. No man or woman could love me the way you do. You willingly sacrificed for me. Even when I was rejecting, rebelling, forgetting, ignoring you, you were saving me. And I want to share that good news to others. I ask you to bring someone else into my life that I can share the good news with. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.